Let me explain to you what uh, is going on with these picture frames up here. This is not just a, a strange Christmas theme decor. For the last month here as a church family, we've been talking about portraits of Jesus in the Bible. We talked about a portrait of Christ that is seen in the patriarchs, those old men and women of the Bible. We talked about a picture of Jesus that's seen in the prophecies, all of the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies that Jesus came and fulfilled. And then last week here on a Sunday morning, we talked about a picture of Jesus, a portrait that is seen today in the world. And that is the picture of his people. The church, after all, is meant to be a portrait of Jesus. Now, I just want to speak towards that for a moment because I understand that it might be possible that in a room like this with a lot of folks that maybe don't go to this church normally, you might even be sitting here and, and you have reservations about making church a normal weekly part of your life. And perhaps the reason that you have that hesitancy about the church is because of the portrait that you have seen in the life of some people who call themselves Christians. And I can understand that. Honestly, I can. Because people do some stupid things sometimes. You don't have to say amen, but you know it's true. I mean, and you it's really bad when people do stupid things and they do it in the name of Jesus. Or the reason that they give for doing what they do is because... I'm a Christian. And maybe, just maybe you're here tonight and, and you have a pushback from the whole idea of church and Christianity. And I mean, Christmas and Easter is one thing, but on a regular occasion, I've seen Christians and I don't know that that's really what I want to be a part of. I mean, and I get that on one hand, but on the other hand, can I just appeal to you that, well, let me say it like this. Imagine if you hired an artist to paint a picture of your mother. And you paid them good money and they painted that picture. And when they were done, they showed you the work they did. And when you saw that picture, you knew immediately, this does not look like my mom. I mean, in the picture, her nose is too big. Her one eye's drooping. Her cheekbones are too low. Her neck looks like it should be on a bulldog. You know, and you look at that picture. Now, how many of you would look at that picture and you would say, Mom, I never realized till just now how ugly you are. No. I mean, how many of us would, would say, you know, I am never going into another art gallery again. Or how many of you would see that horrible picture of your mom and you would say, you know what? Artists are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And yet, there's a lot of people that are resistant to the church because they have come in contact with some amateur artists who failed to portray Christ as good as he should have been portrayed. Can I just confess something to you tonight? Maybe I shouldn't say this. I'm a pastor, but I'm an amateur artist. I really am. I'm an amateur artist, and I understand that I am not always the best picture of Jesus when people look at my life. In fact, if you stick around here for any length of time, you're going to discover that we don't have any professional Christians here. It's all... Now, now when you come and get to know us and, and you become a part of the family of God, we hope that you see Jesus in us. And we certainly have confidence that, that you will. But we're amateur artists at best. We can't hold a candle to the majesty of Jesus. But we do have a work of art 
that is completely reliable. And it's this book right here. This book, the Holy Bible, paints a perfect picture of who Jesus is. And I want to share with you for just a few moments from God's Word tonight. I want to show you a portrait in the presence. So we're going to put this scripture up on the screen and you'll be able to follow along with me. It's a familiar part of the Christmas story. It's in Matthew chapter 2. And I want to read verse 1 through 11. Look at it with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Verse 7 says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now there's a lot of tradition around these three wise men, the Magi. There's a lot of things that uh, have been speculated about these men. Here's what we know from Scripture, just from the authoritative Word of God. They came from the east to Jerusalem. We know they came because they had seen a star that they thought was an indication of the coming Messiah, the promised one of Old Testament prophecy for the people of Israel. We know that they brought with them gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But we also know from Scripture that they didn't show up on the night Jesus was born, contrary to the nativity scene that we all have depicted. They weren't there. In fact, Jesus was probably a year and a half years old when they finally arrived. And that's why they had told Herod uh, the time. And when later Herod tried to find and kill the baby, he had all the children two and under in Bethlehem, killed because he thought that was the age of Jesus. We we don't know from Scripture how many wise men came. We often say three. It could have been three. Some believe twelve. It could have been two. We only know that they brought three gifts. And we don't know the value of those gifts, how much of those gifts that they brought There's a lot of legend that that surrounds them. There's some that even believe they've identified the three. They could tell you their names. 
They have tombs to honor them. And they would say that there are three men from three different nationalities and three different generations who all came symbolizing that every tribe and tongue will come and worship Jesus. Now, i got to be honest, I like that tradition. In fact, one of the things we're most proud of in this church is that this is our fourth Christmas together as a church family. And what we've seen in those four years is that this church has grown ethnically in its diversion. And it's also grown generationally. And I think that's what the church ought to be, a microcosm of heaven, that we have every generation and every ethnicity coming together and worshiping the one true God. But we don't know that that's true about these men for certain. So what can we learn from the little bit of information that we have about these three wise men that have become such a big part of the Christmas story? you got to understand that when Matthew wrote his gospel, he wrote it to communicate one thing, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's why his story is intertwined around five different prophecies in the Old Testament that anchor the story of Jesus' birth to the promised Messiah. And I believe that even the three gifts of the Magi are in a sense a prophetic picture of who this Jesus really is. The first gift was gold. And the gold was a gift that was an appropriate offering by a foreign dignitary to a king. The wise men or the magi recognized this astronomical anomaly of a new star as the sign of a prophecy that a new king would be born, the king of Israel. When they saw that star, they believed that he was the king. And that's why they said, we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. They were calling him the king of the Jews. 32 years later, that statement was reiterated in a little bit of a different sense. It was at the moment when Jesus was condemned to die on the cross. Let me just read this portion of scripture to you out of John 19. It says, Pilate had not noted, had a notice prepared and fastened on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. In other words, everyone passing by this major, uh, trade route could see and read the sign that said Jesus was the king of the Jews. Verse 21 says the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Little did Pilate know in that moment, what he was trying to do was an act of spite. He was trying to insult those Jewish leaders. What he didn't realize is what he was actually doing was putting an exclamation point on the word that the Magi had declared some 32 years earlier. That Jesus is in fact the king of the Jews. But I want to tell you tonight, he's more than just the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. You say, what does that mean? That means that Jesus has all authority. That means Jesus is in charge over kings and 
powers and principalities over presidents and over president elects. That means you can relax tonight because Jesus is the king. Amen? He's in charge. And the gift of the Magi of gold was to honor Christ the king. The second gift was also a prophetic statement. It was the gift of frankincense. Now, incense was used all throughout the Bible to burn as an offering on the altar to God. In fact, Isaiah said this, 700 years before Jesus was born, he made this prophetic statement. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. He said, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. That was the sign that God would be with us. So having incense brought to Christ at his birth was a way of honoring the declaration of his deity. That this is an offering of worship, not just to a newborn son, but to God in the flesh. Jesus is God in a body. That's what incarnate deity means. And so by bringing him this gift of incense, they were recognizing his deity. Can I tell you, the message of Christmas is, is not just that Jesus would come and, and fulfill the promise of a son in the line of David to be a king of Israel, but that he would be God's son that would step into the human story and he would be the one who dwells with us. God with us. You know what that means tonight? That means God not only has authority to govern the nations, but He also has all authority to govern over your emotions, over your fears, over anxiety, over depression, over despair. He is not just King of kings. He is God with us. He has power and authority over every demonic stronghold that wants to hold you back, over everything that wars against His bride, the church. Jesus is God with us. Now the last gift is the most unusual gift. It's the gift of myrrh. And myrrh was a spice that was used primarily during the burial process. What a weird gift to bring to a baby shower. But they brought myrrh to Jesus. And, and this gift that signifies death was every bit as appropriate as the gold given for a king or the frankincense given for God. The myrrh reminds us that Jesus stepped down from heaven's throne, not just to be born in a manger, but he came to be crucified on a cross. Literally, Jesus was born to die. And the myrrh in the story reminds us that Bethlehem's manger, though we sing silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, that manger sits under the long shadow of Calvary's cruel cross. Jesus was born to die. And the myrrh reminds us of that promise. But the good news is that of the three gifts, the myrrh is the only one that Jesus never got to use. See, the reality is, I'm sure the gold was valuable. As you read through the story, 
Joseph and Mary had to take the baby Jesus and, and flee to Egypt. And I'm sure the gold helped him to provide for his young family, even as a refugee. I'm sure the frankincense was something they could use as a sweet-smelling offering in their worship to God. I mean, imagine the pressure. It's hard enough raising kids these days, but imagine the pressure of knowing you're raising the Son of God. And I'm sure the frankincense was helpful in their worship. But the myrrh, the myrrh would have been reserved for the anointing of Jesus' body after he died. That's what Mary would have wanted it for. And that's what the women who followed Jesus' ministry actually intended to do. If you move back into the story, 32 years later, we see in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 55, it says, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph of Arimathea, and they saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid in it. And then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandments. They couldn't go and anoint Jesus' body after he was buried in the grave. They had to wait till after the Sabbath was over. And then Luke chapter 24 begins with these words. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices, the myrrh, that they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, the Bible says, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. He said, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Can I tell you, Jesus never had to use the myrrh because his body didn't stay in the grave. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. You know, I heard it said one time that if it had been three wise women, they would have shown up on time. They would have brought a casserole. They would have helped deliver the baby. And they probably would have had a gift receipt. But the truth is, the gifts that the Magi brought were appropriate Because they were a portrait in these presents. It's a portrait of who Jesus really was when he came on to the scene. And the greatest gift was not the gift in their hands. The greatest gift is what it says in Matthew 2 and in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother. And they bowed down and worshipped him. See, the real question tonight for us is what does he want from us? In fact, that's the greatest question of all theology. Who is God and what does He want from me? Who is God and what does He want from you? The greatest gift that you could give God tonight is your love and adoration. He wants your heart this Christmas. He wants you to recognize Him as the King of kings, 
that He has governing authority over everything. He wants you to recognize Him as God in the flesh. That He's not just in control of all of the things surrounding you, but all of the things within you. That He knows everything you're facing and that He cares deeply about you. He wants you to worship Him as God. And He wants you to see Him as the Savior who came and bled and died and gave His life so that you could be forgiven. Because the Bible communicates without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so as much as we would love to stay in the warmth and in the moonlight of Bethlehem's manger, we must force our gaze farther down the story to a cross into a dark day in history when Jesus laid down His life for you and me. That's who we come to at Christmas. And the greatest response that you could give is not your money, not your influence, not your good deeds, not your kindness. It's your heart. That you would be like the wise men and from your heart you would come and bow down in worship to the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. So tonight we want to do that in a very practical way. We want to invite you to receive communion with us. And right now our ushers are preparing to to pass out the elements of communion. Now you need to understand something about our church family here. We practice open communion. That just means you don't have to be a member of this church. In fact, you don't have to be a member of any church to partake of communion. We believe this is what the Bible says, the table of the Lord. Not the table of Wrightsville Assembly of God. It's His table. And He said, whosoever will may come and drink freely of the waters of life. And so we want to extend an invitation to everyone to take communion. Maybe you've never done this before. Let me explain what's going to happen. As the ushers are coming, they're going to pass out a little wafer of bread. And they're going to give you a little cup of juice. And I want to just invite you to hold on to that little cracker and that little cup of juice. Because in just a few moments, we're going to all receive them together. And that together part is very important. Because when Jesus talked about communion, he said this is something that we do together as the family of God. And he said whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink from this cup, what we're doing is we're declaring... Who He is as the Savior of the world. Who Jesus really, really is. And so tonight, as you receive those elements, I do want to give you a word of admonition from the Scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul is teaching the church... And this is what I want to teach you. He's teaching them what he learned about a portrait of Jesus in the Passover. The Passover was a tradition that the Israelites had celebrated for hundreds of years. And the night Jesus was going to be arrested and go to the cross, he celebrated this meal for the last time with his disciples. In fact, he said, I won't eat this meal again until I eat it with you in my kingdom in heaven. But there's a portrait of Jesus in the Passover. And so Paul writes to the church, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, 
took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Paul writes, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you need to know what we're making a statement of when we eat this bread and drink this juice. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Not just in a intellectual sense, but we're proclaiming the purpose and the work that was accomplished in the Lord's death. That we believe that Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He was sinless. That's why the miracle of the virgin birth is such an integral part of the Christmas story. Because you and I, we were born into sin. All of us are a part of Adam's fallen race. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when man sinned, sin polluted the bloodline of humanity. But Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, circumvented that process by being born of a virgin. What we're declaring is that Jesus' sinless life made the atonement for your sinful life. That you and I, we can't save ourselves. There's nothing that I could do. Doesn't matter how much I go to church. Doesn't matter how much I give to charity. How much I drop in the bucket for the Salvation Army. How many good deeds I do. How I raise my kids or how I was raised. There's nothing I can do to purchase my own salvation. Because I'm a sinner. And if I've broken one commandment, it's like I've broken them all. But what we're declaring in proclaiming his death is saying, I recognize that Jesus' death was a substitute. That I'm the one that deserves to die for my sins. Because the Bible says in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. So this is a celebration. Even though it's a statement of death, it's a celebration. Because it should have been my death. It should have been all of our death. But the reality is, Jesus died for us. Now I want to read the next verse to you. Because these are words that we should all consider. Paul goes on to say, because of what we're celebrating, so then, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now in one sense, listen, we all eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Because even the best of us are amateur artists. We mess up. We fail. We don't portray Christ the way He should be portrayed. 
But what the Bible calls us to do is to examine our heart and to make sure that when we come to Jesus, we don't do it haphazardly. That this isn't just some religious ceremony. The caution of Scripture is that we understand the significance of what Jesus did. And that as we eat this bread that represents His body, and as we drink from the cup, we do it with an appreciation in our hearts. And we do it from a posture of worship. So I want to invite you, before we receive communion, to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. And again, maybe you're here today, and with your head bowed and your eyes closed, this is something new for you. Or maybe it's something you've never done before. But can I tell you, it's for you as much as it's for anybody. There's not a, there's not a thing you need to do before you can come to Jesus. He invites you to come just as you are. So right now, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with God, but you're recognizing tonight, faith is rising in your heart and you're saying in your heart that, Jesus, I realize that you came to save me from my sins and I want to celebrate that tonight by receiving these emblems, the bread and the juice that represent your body and your blood that was sacrificed for me. If you're here tonight, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come to the altar. You just need to be honest with God in your heart and say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. That's a prayer we should all pray tonight. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. And as you pray that prayer from your heart, know that Jesus is not He's not just coming like a genie to grant you three wishes. He doesn't come to just absolve your guilt. He comes to be your Lord, to be the leader of your life. So I want to invite you to pray a prayer in your own heart. It says, Jesus, I need you to save me, but I also need you to lead me. Help me in this coming year. To live the kind of life that you purposed me to live. That you created me for. If you can pray that with sincerity in your heart. Tonight I want to invite you. To celebrate. The sacrifice of our Savior on this Christmas Eve. Let's receive the bread together. when you're ready, let's drink the juice as well. Amen. There's a cup holder in the, in the book rack underneath the pew in front of you. You can set that cup right there. And I just want to take a moment longer. We're about to dismiss this service, but I, I want to show you something. Something I've been carrying around for a few days with me. This is a small picture frame. I've been carrying it with me just as I've been praying about this series and everything we're preaching on. And and this is just a reminder to me of a couple of things. 
This picture frame reminds me that there are portraits of Christ all around me. And the ushers are coming right now, and I want to give you one of your own, just like this. Just as a small token that you can take with you, because these moments, they come and they pass so quickly. But maybe you want to take that little picture frame and put it on your keychain or let it hang from your rearview mirror. Or maybe you just want to carry it in your pocket like I've been doing. But when I look at this picture frame, it reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me that there are portraits of Jesus all around me. And I don't know about you, but I'm guilty at times of going through the day without even recognizing His presence. So now I'm going to see this hanging on my mirror. And it's going to become a prayer when I get in my car. God, help me to see you today. Help me to not miss the majesty of the sunrise this morning or the laughter of children or the breeze that rustles through the trees. God, help me to not be so preoccupied with the day-to-day that I miss the portraits of my Savior that's all around me. He's everywhere. He's God Emmanuel. He's near to you. And the second prayer is this. And this is maybe a little bit harder to pray. But I recognize that though I may be an amateur artist, I'm the only portrait of Jesus that some people are going to see. Some people won't come to church and hear a sermon. Some people may not open up the Word of God and and read the accurate picture of Jesus that we have in the Bible. But they know me. And they know you. And so, this has become my prayer. God, would you fill in the frame with your presence so that when people see me, they see you. God, help me today to be a picture of Jesus for somebody else. In a word I say, in an act, maybe just in the way that I react to circumstances that I don't even know are coming. God, help me today to be a portrait of Jesus. I want to invite.